This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're exploring the world of James Bond with Ian Fleming's 1959 novel Goldfinger. This novel's the seventh in the Bond series and follows the iconic spy as he investigates the activities of the villainous Auric Goldfinger, a man obsessed with wealth and who plans to rob the gold reserves of the United States. The story goes from Miami to London to Geneva to New York and eventually to a violent climax at Fort Knox. While the novel contains some aggressive views about race and sexuality, there's no doubt that Fleming had a talent for constructing a compelling adventure. As Burgess says, quote, He raised the standard of the popular story, and it's unwise to disparage the well-made popular. Ian Fleming was born in 1908 and worked as a journalist before the Second World War, during which he served in the Naval Intelligence Division a posting which directly inspired the creation of James Bond. He wrote all of the Bond stories at his house, Goldeneye, in Jamaica, and while the spy thrillers dominated his writing career, he also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. He died in 1964 at the age of 56. To guide us through the world of James Bond, we called on the expertise of Kim Sherwood. Kim's a novelist and lecturer in creative writing at the University of Edinburgh. She published her first novel, Testament, in 2018 and was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award the following year. Her latest novel is Double or Nothing, the first in a new trilogy which follows a group of double O agents as they search for a missing James Bond. It's available now from HarperCollins. You can follow Kim on Twitter and Instagram at Kim T. Sherwood. I'm Graham Foster of the Burgess Foundation and I spoke to Kim Sherwood about Goldfinger, Fleming and her own novel Double or Nothing in June 2022. Kim, thanks for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. We we like to start the, the podcast with asking you how you first discovered the book we're talking about, which is Goldfinger by Ian Fleming. Um, when did you first discover it and, and uh, when did you discover Fleming's writing more, more generally? Well, thank you so much for having me here. My discovery of Fleming's writing was really a kind of crucial point for me um, growing up. So I'd always loved spy stories. I used to, you know, play as a spy as a little kid. And then seeing the Pierce Brosnan films on TV, I was completely entranced. And I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I was very lucky that nobody laughed at me and said that was a very silly idea. So when I was about 12, probably, I said to my mum that I really wanted to write a spy story, but I didn't know how. 
And my mum said, well, you should start by reading some. Uh, I grew up in Camden Town. We were in Camden. We were outside Black Gold Books, a really fantastic secondhand bookshop. So we went inside and I bought From Russia With Love. That was the first one I read in pan paperback, those fantastic kind of quite pulpy pan covers that I love. And I just fell in love with Fleming's style, with the character. And then I went through and I kind of read them in order. So by the time I got to Goldfinger, I guess I would have been um, well, probably 13 or 14. And I remember my my primary thought was, wow, this is a lot of golf, because I, I didn't know anything about golf. I'd never watched it, didn't know the rules. Uh, but I also was really pulled in by this world Fleming sets up. He, he, he writes a lot about games in the books, um, whether it's golf or two-handed canasta, as it is in Goldfinger. Um, and really, it's about the great game of spying, as it was known in the early 20th century. And, and of course, games have rules, and there are rules to the spy game as well. So I was really intrigued by things like, you know, in Goldfinger, Bond says you should always stay in a station hotel because they'll have good food, um, that people's secrets are kept in their bathroom. So you should always go looking through their cabinets for their secrets. So I was pulled in by the kind of the rules of the game and the descriptive style. Fleming's style is... It's very visual. I think they, they borrowed a lot from that visual language in the films. So something like the introduction to the hotel in Florida, um, where we have all of these colours and the sea and the sound and the smells. Or, or later in the book, when Bond is on the train going across the country and we have, I wrote it out because it's such a beautiful line. Um, he's on the train watching the sunrise. Um, Fleming writes, slowly the red dawn broke over the endless plain of black grass that gradually turned to the famous Kentucky blue as the sun ironed out the shadows and ironed out the shadows. God, I just love that. So I was completely pulled into his writing and that's remained influential for me, you know, all of my life. I, I think that's a, a brilliant description of, of Fleming's writing. Um, quite often, uh, Fleming's writing is is sort of seen uh, as something not not quite literary, uh, <laughs> as I think Burgess alludes to in his his review of Goldfinger in Ninety Nine Novels. He says at the end of his review, he says we must beware of snobbishness, and I think yeah. I think uh, that the way you've described described Fleming's writing there gives gives it that that credit that it, it deserves. I think it's very evocative and and simple in places, but but. Mm you know it has has its own power to it absolutely and and you're right about the golf of course which seems to go on <laughs> for, for ages um, long section. <laughs> so what what was burgess compiled his list in 1984 what was fleming's reputation when burgess was compiling his list generally and uh, why do you think burgess chose goldfinger out of all of the bond books well, it's quite a curious time, really, for Bond, 1984, because at this stage, um, you're about to have the, the very last of the Roger Moore films. That would come out in 1985, A View to a Kill. And Moore had been Bond for over 12 years. And in his own words, he felt that he he maybe um, did, you know, did a couple more films than he ought to have. He felt like he maybe was aging out of the character. And so I think there was a bit of a sense maybe of some um, Bond fatigue um, in the public. That's not to say that it wasn't still enormously successful. It was, but um, it maybe was a question of kind of where next. The films were also had become uh, maybe larger than life. I mean, there's a reputation of the Moore films of being quite fantastical. I think actually the Moore films are very varied in tone, but 
there was a sense that it was, you know, these films were great spectacles, maybe more than they were serious. Um, and that perhaps played into how Fleming was perceived. What you were saying uh, about Burgess's comments on, he says, you know, some people might be surprised that I'm including Fleming, kind of guardians of the novel might be surprised because he's so popular. And that's the crux of it, I think, what popularity does to prestige. So Fleming, when he when he first sat down to write Casino Royale, he said, I'm going to write the spy story to end all spy stories. So very big ambition. And he said that he was writing for what he called A readers. And when the books came out, he was surprised to find that the B and C classes were interested too, as he said. So he was surprised by this kind of mass popularity. And the effect that it had on his reputation was that the early books were reviewed as um, sort of, quote, serious works of literature, whatever we really mean by that. And it's it's worth interrogating those words, but they, they were reviewed in that way. And then the more popular his books became, because, of course, they became massive bestsellers. And James Bond really stepped off the page and, and grew his own life. The more popular they became, the less, perhaps, seriously he was taken as a writer. So you have those two things working together in conjunction in 1984, I think. Perhaps a sense of where next from, from the films and that things had maybe become um, larger than life, lost that seriousness, which was also felt about the books themselves too. Um, you know, a general idea that these weren't sort of works of literature. And again, I say that with sort of quotes around it um, and with provisos because as as Burgess says, beware snobbery. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to that. And a lot of it comes down to a kind of generalised view of things. As I said, I think Moore's films have a lot more variety than, than sometimes is remembered. Um, but in terms of Burgess choosing Goldfinger kind of within that context, I think although he says that the, the book of Goldfinger is better than the film, I wouldn't be surprised if what contributed to that choice in part was the popularity of the film. Because in many ways, it was the first of the Bond films to be a global phenomenon. It had the Aston Martin, it spawned merchandise in a massive way for the first time. It had iconic imagery, you know, the woman painted gold. It had the Ken Adams set designs. And it was often cited as the, as the best of the films and looked back on um, with a great deal of love and fondness, perhaps as a kind of um, golden era, forgive the pun, of James Bond. So I wouldn't be surprised if, although Burgess in some ways dismisses the film as sillier than the book, if that contributed to his thinking. But I think also the book itself, you know, it's it's got all of the ingredients. It's the sixth in the series from Fleming. So he's kind of perfected his his recipe. It's got the larger-than-life villain. I think Goldfinger is certainly one of the most um, kind of lurid, vivid of the villains. Uh, it's got the Aston Martin, it's got the locations, it's got the plot within a plot that constantly escalates. You've got three fantastic female characters, um, you've got a very menacing mercenary, but you've also got, because it's the sixth in the series, a reflective and sometimes very self-doubting Bond, who's been in this game for a long time now and is tired. And you've got, as I said, some exquisite writing. Yeah, and I, I think uh, it's one of the Bond books as well that is quite a, a sort of linear and uh, it's it's narrated from a sort of constant point of view, whereas Fleming sort of played around with other other books where the, the narrators were 
we're sort of watching the Bond do all of his mm. his action and that sort of thing. So mm. so perhaps it's a sort of most sort of uncut Bond, if you know what I mean. It's it's the sort of most Bondy Bond book, if that makes sense. Absolutely, because as you say, we're really saturated in his point of view, and that's something that, of course, the films are kind of through his eyes as well. But that's something that prose gives you that, in some ways cinema has to turn to other languages to be to be able to do you know we'll turn to the acting the cinematography all of those things in place of the point of view that prose gives you where we are really in Bond's mind for the story it's unavoidable talking about film we already have talked about (laughs) film in talking of Fleming's work but there are some major differences I think how how Mm. is the bond of Fleming different to the bond of the films um, and do you think that the characterization in something like Goldfinger would be a surprise for, for readers today coming from the films? You know, I think it would, because I think you're right. There are some significant differences in characterization. And partly that's because a lot of the films are quite self-contained adventures. There isn't an arc across multiple films. Really, you could argue until we get to Daniel Craig, where we see him become a double O. Um, We see his journey, we see his different relationships, and we see his ending. So Daniel Craig's arc, in some ways, introduced time to Bond, introduced a changing character. And I think that actually harks back to Fleming, because, of course, Fleming is writing a series in which the character is is on an arc, is changing in each book. Um, So as I said, we we meet a Bond here in the sixth book who is full of reproach, uh, questions, doubts, He says his nerves are shredded Um, and it opens with him regretting. He calls regret the death watch beetle in the soul, which is a line I just love. We open with him in this kind of existential crisis of life and death. He's just killed a man and he is thinking about the blankness on the man's face and the emptiness of the body. And he's thinking about how many people he's murdered. And he's sitting in a hotel, uh, sitting in an airport, sorry, waiting for a plane, wondering if he'll go to a hotel just wanting to get drunk and he he says he wants something soft and high and easy and when you compare that opening to the film's opening it's a similar setup it's south america it's drugs he does kill somebody but it's it's played for laughs we have the positively shocking line you know we have we have connery's um fantastic uh, charisma it's it's made funny rather than what it is in the books which is this quite somber opening um, but follows him all the way through. So he then has the death of the Masterton sisters on his hands, which does make him angry in the films, but he deals in the films, I would say, with anger through humour and through violence, um, through action, whereas here we're in his mind. So we see how much it weighs on him, um, what happens to both of them. So I think there's partly his mindset is a difference, But I would also say that in a way, his attitude to the female characters is is different. This is written at the the end of the 50s. And in some ways, it kind of looks ahead, I would say, to the sort of free love of the 60s. So he he, uh, sleeps with Jill in the book in, in the beginning. They take this long train journey together. So it's not contained in the hotel. They spend a lot more time together. And he thinks afterwards about, you know, did they do anything wrong? Um, did they break any moral codes? And he thinks about, you know, both of them, both of them wanting to be together. So he's he kind of thinks more about his implications, the implications of his actions with women and the implications of his relationships. It, it means more to him, I would say. Um, 
although he is rattled by their deaths in the film, I think it's it's played differently. It's much more contained in the film. In some ways, the film you could say is neater. You know, it contains the action to more set pieces. Uh, but I think you know people might be surprised and rewarded turning to the book because they'll find a bond that is perhaps a little more human. Yeah, and, and with that, I think come Bond in in the book is is an imperfect character where where quite often in the films, not necessarily Goldfinger in particular, but quite often in the films, Bond is is not that sort of human and imperfect. He he's a a hero essentially. Whereas in in Goldfinger, he in the novel Goldfinger, he's he's sort of angry and mm-hmm. and you know he he's not. A heroic character in places he's he's uh he's not very likable sometimes in, in, the, in yeah. the book he he's yeah. all that that thing and sometimes he's really boring in the book you know I mean we mentioned the golf scene right. and, and the way he sort of gets into the minutiae of yes. of playing golf and and the tactics of playing golf it's sort of nerdish behavior almost which yeah. you don't expect from Bond when coming from the films I guess no, and I think you're right that he's much more fallible. He can make mistakes, and, and Fleming really enjoys a kind of a, a sly nod to the reader. So there's a short story where um, Rosico, where, where Bond is kind of on the, the trail of smugglers. So it's a little like Goldfinger. And he's in this restaurant um, having dinner with what he thinks is the target. Um, but at another table, there's, there's another smuggler um, who wants to kind of spy on this conversation, and he, he owns the he owns the restaurant or he has a relationship with the owner and he embeds a microphone in a chair and the waiters do some clever maneuvering whisk some chairs around to create a larger table for a party that's just arrived and so this new chair gets put down next to bond which is going to listen in on his entire conversation and fleming puts in brackets bond didn't notice any of this there was no reason that he should so we're kind of shown every now and again you know here's where he's fallible here's where he's vulnerable here's where he's making a mistake and as you say, I think the the films, it's not that he never makes mistakes, um, but he, I would say he's hes far less vulnerable in the films. You've sort of mentioned throughout our, our conversation so far the, the sort of locations of Bond and mm. and the, the the hotel in Miami. And, mm. you know, Miami, yeah. uh, when I was reading Goldfinger, it really struck me um, that this was a sort of aspirational novel Mm. Um, coming at a time when the British population, I, I suppose, were were still thinking about things like rationing and mm-hmm. the the Second World War, and I wanted to ask you, um, to what extent do you think that Bond and maybe the politics of, of Fleming's books are products of the the Second World War? I, I think they are really significantly, as you say, post post World War Two, we have the the birth of of air travel for the public, but it's still very limited. So the travel that Bond does is very aspirational. It's giving people, you know, it's almost like one of those, if you think of those vintage travel posters that would have kind of a fantasy version of another country painted, you know, that's in a, in a way what Fleming was offering readers and, and a very colorful world out of the kind of drab gray rationing. Um, but I think it's also in the politics and particularly in Goldfinger, in terms of the, if you like, the sides of World War II. So if, if people haven't read Thrilling Cities, I'd really recommend it. It's Ian Fleming's uh, travel book. And he writes about different cities in the world, different kind of thrilling cities. And he writes about Berlin. 
And at the end of the chapter, he, he writes, I left Berlin without regret. From this grim capital went forth the orders that in 1917 killed my father and in 1940, my youngest brother. So both of these conflicts were deeply personal for Fleming, as they were for everybody. And he, of course, worked as an intelligence officer in the war. And in Bond, in, in, through all of the books, the side that you were on in the war means everything. So, for example, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, when Bond meets the head of the Union Corps, who, who becomes his father-in-law, um, although this man is a criminal and a gangster, he worked for the resistance. So he was on the right side, which means that he's kind of OK in Bond's eyes. And we can see in Goldfinger that we've got a mixture of World War II and then the Cold War coming together in terms of the sides of the book. So Goldfinger, of course, uh, has, has Russia's support. So we've got the Cold War coming in. Um, but the people who work for him, his sort of team, are Germans and Koreans. So we've got the sort of um, the, the delineations of World War II coming through. And it also very much plays on, on Bond's mind. So when he's being tortured by Goldfinger, which in the book is a circular saw, not a laser, he thinks about a friend of his who survived torture at the hands of the Gestapo. And he thinks about that friend's advice. So it's very much on his mind. And I would say it was also on, on Fleming's mind, I would guess, in the writing of it, particularly the, the end of the book, where we have this kind of battle scene, which is a lot like a scene from a war, more, more than some of the other um, endings of the novels, which perhaps are more personal. And Bond thinks that the you know, population of 60,000 people of Fort Knox and the surrounds have been killed. He thinks that this poison has worked. And we have this description from, from his perspective of mass death. So Fleming writes, now there were scores of bodies, men, women, children, soldiers. The platform was scribbled with them, faces upturned to the roof. And I think that that image of mass death was really an image of, of World War I, but especially World War II, where we have for the first time really in human history, the first time of mechanized mass death. And we have images like that appearing in newspapers and soldiers experience them liberating the camps and survivors experience them firsthand. So I do feel that Fleming, you know, through this in some ways quite fantastical story, Fleming is almost exorcising onto the page the ghosts of World War II. That's a, a really excellent answer. And, and it sort of brings me to your book, um, Double or Nothing, a fantastic uh, adventure set in, in the world of Bond, um, curiously without much Bond in it, um, which is, <laughs> is a, a fascinating uh, aspect of the book. But um, Fleming's books are so entrenched in, in the, the middle of the 20th century um yeah you your book uh is a complete updating of the world it, it's set in contemporary times mm -hmm. um there are sort of futuristic elements to it which i suppose was true of, of fleming's books as well right um but my first question about your book is how how, how did you get to do it how did how, mm -hmm. how what was the process how how did you 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 sort of begin this uh did you have to pitch your ideas or or so um, my well, my agent heard that the Fleming estate were looking for a new writer and, and that Anthony Horowitz's kind of tenure is coming to an end. Um, so she heard this and, and being fantastic, she, she remembered that when we 
first had lunch together, you know, way back in 2016, I had said to her, sort of half jokingly, one day I, I want to write James Bond, which I've been saying kind of half jokingly to people all of my life, uh, but you don't really expect that anyone's going to take it all that seriously. Um, but but Sue did. And she remembered a, a tweet I had uh, posted when Testament, my first novel, came out. I, I tweeted a picture of it in the bookshop next to Anthony Horowitz's Bond, and I tweeted something like... Um, one step closer to my dream of writing James Bond. So she scrolled back through my Twitter, found that, screenshot it, and sent it to the Flemings and said, you know, maybe this is a writer for you. So they then read my first novel um, and, and really liked it. And they kind of then invited me to, to send them some ideas. And they said, you know, it's, it's very important to them that their writers are Bond fans. This is their family legacy. And it's really important to them that their writers care. So they said, is there any way you can sort of prove that you know that, you, that you're a Bond fan and that you're a long-time fan and I had a school report which luckily my mother had kept a school report from when I was probably about 13 and we were asked to uh, write about an author we admired and I'd written about Ian Fleming so I sent them a copy of that and I said you know this is this is quite literally a, a lifelong dream and they invited me to send them some ideas um, for kind of what I would what I would do with the books if I was given an opportunity. So I sent them along, um, and and it all went from there. So when when it was all sort of real and I knew that it was actually happening, it was so exciting. It was it was ex extraordinarily exciting and extraordinarily surreal, you know, because I I really had been fantasizing about this, you know all of my life really it, it comes across in the book I mean when I first picked it up I was I, I was skeptical a bond book without bond how will that work and then suddenly I'm on the last page thinking wow it's over already I've, I've finished it it was great um but uh it it is very much a bond book even though bond he appears in one flashback I think but um it is very much a bond book it's set in that universe it, it's um, you know, you recognise even the style of the writing is kind of Fleming-y. Um, but it's much more up to date. I think, I think we, we can say about Fleming that, that some of his, his writing in Goldfinger, in many of the other Bond books, is, is not, it's very much of its time, isn't it? It's not, it perhaps w will not be taken very well by modern readers. Mm. Did you face challenges in modernising Fleming's world? Uh, and, and how much inspiration for that modernisation came directly from Fleming? Well, a lot of it, really, because I, I, when I sort of found out it was happening, I went back and I reread all of the books and I thought, how can I kind of take my leave from Fleming in a way um, so that I'm bringing in his world and I'm honouring what I love about his writing and I'm making it modern? And then I thought, well, well, what would he have done? If he was writing now, what would he have done? So I looked at, for example, the threats that Bond faces in the novels, and all of them really are the, the threats of Fleming's time. So, for example, in Goldfinger, the fear that all of the characters have around the atomic bomb, you know, that was the threat of their time and what they had just witnessed in, in World War II. So I thought, what, you know, what's our equivalent threat today? It's the climate crisis. So that is the kind of the, the threat that the double O's are facing in this book. And that was sort of as I say, taking taking my leave from Fleming um, and, then, and then modernizing it. Um, and similarly with the characters, I thought, well, he was writing about the secret service that he knew, you know, that he kind of 
been a part of or part of its formation. So what what is it like today? Um, now, obviously, nobody at MI6 sat down with me and told me their secrets. But I, I kind of thought, who, who are they going to be recruiting? They, they need agents to be able to go undercover all over the world. So who is going to be in their stable? And that, that kind of gives me a first step. Who's going to be useful to them to, to develop the characters? Um, and what are their relationships to Bond? You know, I, I thought about Bond like a star, you know, like having the gravity of a star because he's, it's very rare. It's very rare for someone to have come up with a fictional character who does live beyond the page in the way that James Bond does. You know, there's, there's a few Shakespearean characters that do, uh, Sherlock Holmes does. Um, we could say maybe Harry Potter does now, but, but it's a short list. And because of that, James Bond carries a great deal of weight. He, he carries his own gravity. So if he's at the center of my universe, my expanded universe, how does his gravity work on the other characters? So I thought, well, there'll be some double O's who are very close to him, um, who have very intimate relationships with him, who care a great deal, are desperate to find him because he's, he's missing in the book and they're desperate to get him back. And then there'll be some who weren't that close with him, didn't know him so well and have their own journeys and their own arcs to go on. And I thought that that balance really helps me because it brings together Fleming's world with my new modern fresh world. Yeah, I think I think that really works. I mean, there's three main characters in the book, and mm -hmm. uh, I think that really works well because you get this sort of global story that that each character is is sort of on a different mission, but the missions are sort of tangentially mm -hmm. attached, and I I think that that allows you to explore the world in a lot of detail and some of the most fun bits I don't I don't want to ruin any of the fun bits so I won't mention right. what the fun bits are <laughs> um but but they are bits where where you've had you played around with some of the familiar aspects of Fleming's world the traditional things that everybody who reads a Bond book expects right and I you know what those are I don't need to tell you and, and I don't want to ruin it but but how much freedom did you feel you had to do that because that that's a big a big choice to make and and did the Fleming estate react to any of those more creative interpretations they've been so welcoming and so supportive of my ideas you know they're very they really treat their writers like family and they say to you you know we've chosen you and and we have faith in you and so so follow your inspirations and that was that was so you know lovely for me as a writer to have that encouragement and it was really fun you know it was, it was fun to take these traditional elements as you say and to think okay what um what what twist can I put on these that that brings them into the modern world so I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say um that Q is now a quantum computer that a whole team of people run um which you know partly was just a love of puns um but also because quantum computing is is being used by MI6 and other organizations at the forefront of fighting terror uh, for things like um, crunching through massive data sets of, for example, financial transactions between terror groups. So I thought, you know, Fleming was great for bringing in cutting edge technology. I thought, let, let's do that and let's take Q and make Q a quantum computer with, with a whole team of characters around it. And it's also a way to kind of, in a sense, say, you know, Desmond Llewellyn as Q in the films was was iconic um, to say that, you know, Weishaw has done such a fantastic job with the new Q. I think that um, fans feel really attached 
So you don't want to kind of overwrite that. You don't want to say you have to set that aside, um, but rather say, uh, what can I do that takes you down an unexpected turn in the road and give you something that harks back to what you love and is new at the same time? And it was the, the same with, um, uh, for example, Money Penny's character, who's in the book, um, but, but has had a promotion, let's say, which I felt she was due after so many decades. Um, all, all the, the, the things you play around with do work, and, and I didn't feel as I was reading that I was being denied what um, I would come to a Bond book for. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think they work. Um, and another of the traditional aspects that you don't play around with so much is the fact that this is a global adventure. It, it, it mimics uh, Fleming in his sort of uh, desire to show exotic locations, maybe mm. some not so exotic locations all around the world. Mm. And the way you describe these places all seem extremely detailed and real. And I, I, as I was reading, I was wondering what, what sort of research did you need to do um, outside of Fleming's work in, in the creation of the novel? Because some, some of the places, for example, there's a sort of desolate mm. Russian airport mm. it, there. I mean, did you go to a, a, a Russian airport? <laughs> No, well, so I wrote most of the book in lockdowns, so I couldn't go anywhere, um, which was a challenge when you're writing a jet setting, you know, global hopping novel. And for me, place is really important in my writing. And my usual um, tactic would be what I what I pretentiously call site based research because it gets you funding <laughs> to, to go off to these places. So with Testament, my first novel, I, I went to everywhere that I was writing about because that's how you find the details, um, Virginia Woolf called them the facts that engender, you know, the, 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 the facts, the true to life details that spark, that generate, that give rise to what you need to make a place feel real to the reader. And Fleming was fantastic at that. You know, he had such a journalistic eye and he was always focused on, on making things plausible and grounded by giving you those facts, those sort of seeds of truth. So, I then kind of faced a bit of a challenge because it was lockdown and I couldn't go anywhere. So what I did in part was choose locations of places that, I, that I'd been, you know, already in life. Um, and I'm always, because I've always had this sort of fantasy of uh, being a spy or writing spy fiction, everywhere I go, I'm looking at through that lens, you know. So uh, part of the book is set in Berlin. And um, anybody who's read Testament will know that Testament is also set in Berlin. And I spent a lot of time there. So I was also kind of looking back at that time and thinking, you know, when I when I was in that villa on Lake Ramsay, you know, what did I think would be a good rendezvous spot around here if you were a spy? <laughs> so I was drawing on those kind of uh, past inspirations. And then for the places that I'd never been and that I couldn't get to, um, and, and some of them, you know, you wouldn't be allowed to go to at all because they're in conflict zones. I was talking to people who'd been to those places. So if I haven't been somewhere, I always want to try and talk to somebody who has. I'm lucky that my dad is a tour manager for rock and roll bands and has spent his whole life uh, traveling the world. So I would send him a text, you know, have you, have you been to an abandoned airport city in Kazakhstan? And he'd reply, yes, what do you want to know about it? <laughs> and then I'd um, ask him for details. And, you know, when I'm talking to people like that, I'm asking them, what does it smell like? What does it sound like in the morning? Um, what kind of drinks are stocked behind the bar? What are the roads like when it's icy? What do people say, you know, 
for, for chit chat. You know, it's like small things that make a place come alive. And then I sort of magpie little details. I hoard details um, and I try and use them to hopefully create something that, that feels very real. And, and, and that goes for other research as well. So, for example, um, one of the characters in the book, Joseph Dryden, 004, he was um, in special forces before becoming a double O and he sustains an injury um, in the field as a soldier. And I, I really wanted to get the details of the injury, how he would have been cared for, um, what would have happened next as he's medically downgraded from frontline service. I wanted to get them right. That felt really important. So I, I, was I talked to a few doctors and I was told, well, really, you need to talk to somebody in the Royal Defence Medical Centre which is a it's a military medical organization it's not public facing so I did some googling and I eventually found a telephone number and I wasn't really convinced this was right but I rang it and you know a corporal so-and-so answered and I said oh I'm I'm a writer my name's Kim Sherwood I'm writing James Bond and I was wondering if a, a doctor might talk to me about one of my characters and there was a bit of a silence and then they said you're writing James Bond. <laughs> I said, yes, I am. Honestly, I am. <laughs> and uh, there was just a bit more silence. And then I said, you know, it had been in the, the news by that point. It was public. So I said, um, you, you, you can Google me. So I, I heard some typing. And then a voice came back and said, what do you want? And I said, well, you know, if, if one of the doctors was just prepared to talk to me, that would be really helpful. So I said someone would call me. I didn't really have high hopes. But then a very high ranking military doctor rang me and said, you know, we, we hear you're writing James Bond. Uh, what would you like to know? And they were so generous with their time. They talked to me for over an hour about, you know, what the character would have gone through. So I'm, I'm always after that. If I can, I want to talk to somebody who's got the first-hand experience. If it's, if it's not an experience I have, I want to find somebody who's an expert in that thing. And, and people are so generous with their time. You know, that's been my experience. People who are passionate about a subject are really happy to invite you into it. Sure, and and that I guess Bond opens a few doors as well. Yes, I have found that if you put James Bond in the subject line of an email, <laughs> it'll get back to you a bit quicker than they might otherwise. <laughs> oh, and and sort of speaking of the the sort of popularity of Bond, um, what what do you think the legacy of Fleming's writing is today, and and why do you think Bond has been such an enduring figure? Well, as we were talking about earlier, you know, Fleming's ambition to to write the spy story to end all spy stories, I think in a way he did it. That's not to say there haven't been other writers in the spy genre who have written, um, you know, what I would call great works of art. John le Carre, Graham Greene. And it's a very healthy genre today um, with writers like Mick Herron, Lauren Wilkinson. You know, it's I think it's a it's a, an incredible pantheon, that genre. But I think what Fleming managed, and in part because of the films as well, um, or... I guess in part isn't the right word, in relationship with the films, I would say. He came up with this character who is mythic and he did it very self-consciously. So we have this moment in the book of, uh, his book from Russia with Love, where the Russians are kind of plotting ways to bring down the British Secret Service and they decide to target its myths and they say, you know, the strength of Britain is based on myths, the, the myth of, of Sherlock Holmes, of, of Scotland Yard, of the Secret Service. And they say myths are, are built on, you know, heroic deeds and heroic people. Have they no such men? And, and, and somebody replies, there is a man called James Bond. So Fleming is 
is pointing to the myth he's created and he's interrogating it. And I think that very deliberate act of a self-aware myth built in the capacity for change. And that's enabled the films, and that's why I say in relationship with, that's enabled the films to create an evergreen character because every actor who inherits Bond can reinvent him in some way. And we've seen that, you know, through all of his different um, reincarnations and, and, and we'll see it again. He's a character, I think, who, who lives on, who has stepped off the page um, and become part of sort of cultural consciousness. And I think that's an extraordinary achievement. Yeah, that's a, a, a great answer. I think, um, you know, Bond, Bond is, is beyond Fleming now, I think. Mm, yeah. um, and, and people don't necessarily think of Fleming when they think of Bond. And I think that's very rare for a writer. I think writers mm. are often tied up in their own creations in mm. in sort of inextricable ways but, mm. but Fleming seems to seems to not be with Bond Bond seems to be his own thing now um yeah. if that makes sense yeah um yeah. And, and one final question the question that we're asking everybody who who comes on to the 99 novels podcast um if you could round Burgess's list up to 100 mm. uh what book would you choose and why this is such a fiendish question. I had such a long <laughs> list. So I, I took a look at Burgess's list, which I thought was amazing. I would actually make, I'm a university lecturer, and I thought this would be an amazing curriculum, you know, for a kind of history of literature. And it's a really wide ranging list as well. But I was thinking, is there anything, is there anything missing or, or a sort of um, space I could fill with, with the hundredth book? And I thought a lot of the books are quite on the serious side. There's not much... Um, Sort of books that are known for their wit, perhaps more than anything else. So at first I thought of P.G. Woodhouse. It doesn't have P.G. Woodhouse on there. But the P.G. Woodhouse I wanted was Right Ho Jeeves, which I think is 1936. So falls. You uh, can have that if you want. You, you don't have to stick to Burgess's years. Okay. Uh, so, so you can it's, too, it's too difficult if you do yeah, that. It's, it's very difficult. You can tell I'm a... I'm a teacher and I stick to a mark scheme. Um, <laughs> so, well, so maybe I'll have him. If I if I couldn't have him, I also thought, although Burgess's list is actually, um, I would say, very diverse and it includes, you know, a good number of female writers as well on it um, for something written at that time. I think there were, I didn't count, but I, I think there were more male writers on there than female. So then I thought maybe put another woman in there. And if I'm wanting wit and I'm wanting a woman, it has to be Georgette Hare who maybe would also fall into uh, what what Burgess talks about in terms of the, the critical suspicion against popularity. Um, Georgia Hare, for those who don't know, wrote um, very witty, very funny historical romances. She kind of invented the Regency romance as a, you know, in its 20th century iteration. She wrote a bestseller every year of her life from the age of 19. Uh, so it was an extraordinary career and she has legions of readers, but she's I think not talked about um, critically as much as she ought to be. So I think she'll be my hundredth and I'm going to choose Venetia, which came out in 1958. So it does fit the mark scheme um, and is my favourite hair. So, so that's where I'd recommend people start with, with Georgette Hare if they've not read her. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and thank you for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. And Double or Nothing by Kim Sherwood is is the book that is out now. And uh, it's a fantastic read and everybody should read it. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been so lovely to chat with you. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Kim Sherwood's novel Double or Nothing is available now from HarperCollins. Her next novel, A Wild and True Relation, about smugglers in 18th century Devon, will be published by Virago in 2023. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor, performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 